Well, if you'll turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, as we really finish up this chapter this morning and really are finishing up Jesus' public ministry of engagement with the world. There is still going to be his trial coming up, and we're going to have some uh, interaction there, but it's going to be extraordinarily limited. It is going to be confined really only to um, the Sanhedrin, and we are going to see that it's going, Jesus is just not going to participate in it to the extent that we see anywhere close to here in John chapter 12. We are, of course, in the Passion Week. So the triumphal entry has just occurred. Uh, we are in the uh, confusion of the post-triumphal entry Jerusalem, where people want to make him king, and yet Jesus is calling them to things that they aren't ready to believe or accept. That if you want me as king, this is what is entailed. And they said, no, no, let us fix that. You got the wrong end of the stick, which of course was their problem, not his. Um, they're the ones with the wrong end of it. Jesus Christ has tried to correct them and they have and to bring again the same message that he has said over and over and over again throughout his ministry. And that is going to be a very important part of what we have to study this morning is the repetitive nature of the message of Jesus Christ that really goes back all the way into the Old Testament that is that which was of John the Baptist, it is that of Jesus Christ, that there would be a Lamb of God that would shed his blood to cover the sins of the world. That the blood of bulls and goats was not capable of doing that. They were temporary. They were pictures of one to come. And they, and they were not, did not accomplish it of their own sake, but rather that faith. And so we see that it is the faith of Abraham that was credited to him as righteousness, not the shedding of blood. And so we find the, the necessity of this sacrifice, and Jesus Christ has been declaring that even his closest inner circle haven't captured that concept, that he is here to die. He is here to, to be the sacrifice, the sinless one, who is the perfect Lamb of God. Even though they began as followers of John the Baptist and heard him say, Behold the Lamb of God, they didn't click what lambs are for, that they are for sacrifice. And even though Christ has repeatedly described not only the fact of the necessity of his death, but of the exact nature of his death, it just hasn't occurred to them. And he has also talked about the resurrection. And if you think that after this week it's going to be clear to them, it really isn't. Uh, and each of the New Testament writers makes it evident that even the resurrection itself didn't click with them. And post-resurrection still didn't click with them. They're still out there fishing when they should be serving. And, and it wasn't until Pentecost, till Acts chapter 2, that we really find them getting it together. Even at the ascension, they are rebuked because they weren't obedient. And so, lest you think that this is just a temporal problem, it is an eternal problem until you have the Holy Spirit engaging us. And when that Holy Spirit comes, now we can be illuminated, lit into the, the, the scriptures and the words of Christ. Now, having said that, and coming into a passage like this, we're going to talk about a judgment narrative. You say, well, if it requires the Holy Spirit to understand God's word, then it must be God's fault if someone doesn't understand it. No, because the Holy Spirit, it says, convicts the world, the world, who? The world 
of all the truths that we are communicating here. We're going to see that later on in John when Jesus Christ describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he'll convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of the judgment to come. And so the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is there, but it is not overwhelming. That is, the presence of the Holy Spirit does not mean you must hear it. It means now you can hear it. Your will is still your own. He is not overriding your will. He is now introducing the idea that now you have the capacity to grasp his truth. And so we do not say that the people listening to Jesus Christ did not have the ability to understand it. They didn't want to understand it. They did not respond either to Jesus Christ, and, and it wasn't until later on when the Holy Spirit comes that they are responsive to him um, as the comforter, as the illuminator, and the convictor that they actually grasped all of this. And John, like many other writers, is going to record that. We didn't get it then, but we do get it now. And so there's a little bit of tension there because we say, well, if the disciples, his inner circle, didn't get it, how can we expect his enemies to pick up on it? But we find that many that Jesus encountered became his followers. And they were anticipating his kingdom. Did they completely understand it yet? No. Were they still thinking on a physical plane? Sure. And so were his disciples. Um, but they were at least willing to follow him on the physical plane and then to accept the hard sayings of Jesus Christ even without even understanding it and re not re recognizing the spiritual plane that they're coming from, that they are the words from heaven, the words of the Father, that they are spiritual truth. And so we come to this passage where Jesus Christ concludes his public ministry. He concludes his engagement with Jerusalemites, with his enemies, with the Sanhedrin in terms of public ministry. The, the trial that is all in the middle of the night, it's not public, it's private, it's illegal, uh, according to Jewish law, and we're going to see all that when we get to it here much later, when we get to what, chapter 18, 19 of John. And so here we have the concluding aspects of Christ's challenge to them. And he has already quoted from Isaiah. We have already had information about him declaring how he's going to die. We have the crowds who want him to throw off the Romans saying, no, 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 the Christ remains forever. And if you aren't him, if you're going to die, then you aren't the Christ. And so who are you? So even in the midst of right on the heels of saying, Hosanna, they're yelling out, who are you? They've just declared him the king of Israel. Now they're saying the same period of time, who are you? Because you're not fulfilling our expectations by your message that you are going to be lifted up from the earth, reference to the crucifixion, one that was uh, very commonly used in that day, and so it was very familiar to them. We saw that even while Israel as a nation had to reject Jesus Christ so that the doors of gospel could be opened to the Gentiles uh, and to all the earth, we find that some individuals did believe in him, but not to the extent that they're willing to risk anything in that belief. And I believe that a lot of Christians in our country fall in that category. We will believe his words. We will believe the narrative. We will we'll celebrate it even on a weekly basis. Uh, but as long as I don't have to take it out there and live it the other six days of the week, 
Um, it's okay. I can, I can do that. I can be a faithful church member as long as it doesn't spill over into the rest of my life. And that's essentially where these people were. They had fear of rejection. They got fear of the rulers of the Jews. And so they simply kept it to themselves. And this is where we ended last week because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They believed but did not confess him. That is, they did not openly tell people they were followers of Jesus Christ even though in their, in their own mind and heart they had made that decision. So we have all these levels of belief going on in John as we have seen all the way through. And John is trying to draw us out of the mire of low belief that is condemning, as we're going to see today, um, to that belief that is full, that is a daily, life-changing and life-committed belief. That is, I will follow him in every aspect of who I am and what I do. That there is no disconnect between who and what I am um, on church on Sunday and who and what I am the rest of the time. Uh, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, end of discussion. It will affect me. It will affect not only the spiritual aspects in my life, it will affect the, the physical aspects of my life. Um, and so I will be obedient to God's word, whether I like these instructions or don't like these instructions. Um, whether they fit my culture or don't fit my culture, I will be obedient to the word of God. Whether society says it is right or wrong is irrelevant to me. Um, it is whether God's word says it is right or wrong, period, and end of discussion. And we looked at the nature of glorifying God that Jesus Christ said, you want to glorify God, and God says, I'm going to glorify my name. How are we going to do that? Through suffering. And we have disassociated glorifying God from the suffering of taking a stand for righteousness. And so should we anticipate that you're going to lose your business if you stand for righteousness in this culture? Absolutely. Do we complain about that? No. You shouldn't complain about it. You should rejoice that you are counted worthy of suffering for his namesake. And in fact, that should be our expectation, is that the more we take a stand, the more we walk in the light, the more the darkness will hate us, and the more they will try to deprive us, even of life itself. Because that's all they can do. All they can do is take away stuff. All they can do is, is make your life a little painful in the temporary. All they can do is, is kill you. That's the worst they can do. They can't take away your joy. They can't take away your peace, which are going to be in the love of God in your life. They can't take away the promises of God. They can't take away eternal life. They can't take away your relationship with God. They, they, they just can't touch anything that is of any eternal value. And so when we come to the concept of what glorifies God and we find that we, we find Christians scrambling and scratching their heads. How can the righteous suffer? And it's like, why aren't the righteous suffering should be a better title of most of our articles and books. Why aren't you suffering if you are righteous? Because we are righteous lot, if we are righteous lot. We are living in Sodom. We are in the gates of Gomorrah. And the Bible says that it vexed his soul every day to sit in the gates of his city. That's how you should be viewing what's going on in our world. It should vex you. The problem is Lot wouldn't get up and leave. And that's where most of us are. 
We try to be righteous in our living, but we won't get up and walk away from Sodom. We're still sitting in the gates, and the gate seats are the places for the leaders of the community. We want to be a leader of the community of sinners. We appreciate the praise of men more than the praise of God. So we have investigated all of this, and we come now to our text, and Jesus Christ is going to close his message out on this day of <laughs> singing hosannas. He's going to close it out um, with something he is not going to say quietly. He is not going to say it uh, softly. He's going to cry this out. It says here in verse 44, Then Jesus cried out, and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world, and whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak, and I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Jesus here takes it to that ultimate step. You want to believe in me, but you're afraid of losing the praise of men, and so you won't profess it. And so he's going to call them to another level of belief. And he's going to challenge them by fundamentally, fundamentally contrasting who he is to who everyone else is. You're concerned about the praise of men. What about this man? What about my praise? Because I'm not just an ordinary man. Jesus Christ's claim here is very distinct. I am the Father. He has already said this very clearly multiple times in Jerusalem in the last couple of years, correct? And each time they took up stones to stone him because you claim to be God. And that's what their accusation before Pilate is. He claims to be the Son of God. And Pilate was fine with the proceedings until he got to that and it shook him. This is about, he, he, he's not claiming to be a king of a nation. He's, try, he's claiming kingship much greater than that. And it says Pilate was disturbed by this. This was the claim. And he's saying, listen, the praise of men and the praise of society is nothing. If, if you don't, if you think you can follow, believe my words and still seek the praise of men, you don't understand who I am. And if you don't understand who I am, it is no wonder that you're at this level of belief way down here. We'll believe you in secret. We'll believe you privately. We'll believe you, uh, yeah, what you have to say is good stuff. And we all encounter those kind of people, and maybe you're one of them. That, well, all the teas of Jesus are good stuff, but you know we don't want to get too radical about this Christianity stuff. And here, Christ being confronted with these people cries out. You cannot compare me to the praise of men because I and the Father are one. If you see me, you've seen him. What you hear from me, this is how he starts his message out, 
right? You believe in me, you believe in the Father. You see me, you see the Father. And then he's going to close it out as well. That's how powerful this aspect is. He begins with it, he ends with it. You, you believe in me, you believe in God the Father, Jehovah. You see me, you've seen God the Father, Jehovah. You hear me, and you have heard God the Father, Jehovah, at the end of the chapter. Because I'm just saying what he tells me to say. I'm his mouthpiece. But on another level than the prophets. So if you believe in me, you believe in the Father. You see me, you've seen the Father. You hear me, you've hear, heard the Father. And now you are over here weighing the praise of men and the praise of God, and you are be acting as though I'm just another man. And that this is just a comparison. It's kind of like picking a candidate for an elected office. Well, I've got to compare the candidates and see which one fits my concept of government or economy or morality. And I'm trying to pick between these peers and trying to choose the, the, the best, right? Or maybe at this point in our society, we're trying to pick the least wicked. But that's not how you come to Christ. Because he isn't among peers. He is incomparable to other men. And so when we sit here and we say, well, am I going to obey men or am I going to obey God? Am I going to obey Jesus Christ? Am I going to obey his word? Um, and you're sitting there weighing that out. You're confessing something by the weighing that out. You're confessing. You don't understand that Jesus is God. He is incomparable to all other men. And so you live your life trying to balance. We call it balancing. We're just walking a fence. We're, put, we're having one side, one foot on one side, one foot on the other. That's not balance. That's, that's, that's hypocrisy. So we, we call it, we're trying to balance this. We're trying to walk this ridge pole. And we're trying to balance ourselves and, and so that we don't make these people angry and we don't make God angry. And you know what the end result is? You're lost. You are the one in danger. And you have endangered everyone that you have tried to please because you have withheld from them the real power of Christian living, which is full surrender to Jesus Christ. And so they get a watered-down version of the gospel by looking into your life. They see a watered-down Christianity, and there's no appeal to them. Because frankly, you're just like everybody else. And so you have condemned them by your watered-down Christianity because now they have nothing appealing to them. You're just like them. You know, you hang out with people that you like. I got that from another preacher I got on the radio this week. If you only hang out with people that you like, how are you any different than the world? Right? That's what the world does. We form little communities, little clubs, little groups, and we have people that are like us, that we like. And churches become nothing different than that. Couldn't possibly go to a church where there's someone there I don't like, that's different than me, that's weird, that's, that, well, then you don't know the love of Christ. So we live this 
tippy-toe Christianity, we do ourselves danger, we, we, we condemn the lost to eternal lostness because we don't care enough to show them what a committed Christian life is, and then the real tragedy is the day of accounting comes and we step before Jesus Christ who is God, you see me, you see the Father, you believe in me, you believe in the Father, you hear me, you hear the Father. The Father is going to entrust everything into the Son. He will be your judge. And He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Not just, a, well, I have to think about you because we have a kind of an acquaintance relationship. No such thing exists. <laughs> Jesus, And look at the list there in Matthew. These, I mean, what they're claiming, we've done this in your name, we've done that in your name, we've done that in your name, and Jesus Christ, get away from me. I don't know you. I never knew you. Leave. And when you leave the presence of God, that is not a good thing. The alternative is eternal flame. And so we find that he's crying this out, and we want to begin by understanding that you cannot compare me to other men. This is not a choice between uh, a balancing out, well, is it better to follow the Romans or to follow this guy? Do we want to stir the pot here? Because we know that Israel is looking for someone to throw off the Romans, and by 66 AD, about 30 some years later than this event, um, they muster up the courage to take it on, and the result four years later is that Jerusalem is burnt down and leveled. 70 AD. So we know that that nature is in them to want to rebel against the Roman uh, Empire and to establish Jerusalem, um, and, they, and they're heroes of the Maccabees, and we have the celebration of that, Hanukkah and all that. Of, of the work of the Maccabees with regard to Antiochus Epiphanes and, and other, others of the Greek nature. And so they were looking for someone like that. Jesus Christ comes in and he's going to say, I'm going to take you to a whole different level. The kingdom I'm talking about is completely different than what you have in mind. Just as I am completely different than all other men. Don't compare me to Caesar. Don't compare me to a prime minister, a president. Don't... don't this is, not, this is a totally different nature of choice. You're dealing with either you accept him as God with all of your heart or you do not even understand the nature of what it means to truly follow after him. Because if, if you are a believer in Jesus and that hasn't sunk into your life, not just into your theology, into your life, that he is your Lord, your master, your God, then you are not the level of belief that Jesus Christ is calling to here. Believe in me. You see, there's already a group of men, lowercase b, believing, right? He's calling them to capital B, believing. Really believe in me. That I am the Father. You see me, you've seen him. Left, understand it at a whole new level. Now he comes into some very difficult instruction. Remember, these are some of his last words that the public would have heard other than Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that he will say on the cross. They will hear these words. After he's established that he and Jehovah are the same, 
He says, I've come, verse 46, as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. That is the word dwell or live or continue on in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, uh, and uh, that, that's a different nature than what we already, I really shouldn't have used believe there again because it's a different Greek word. Um, it, go, it really links back to abiding. Um, do not, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So Jesus Christ comes back to this picture that he has already given to him that he is the light of the world. And again, that there is a distinction, just as there is a distinction between all other men and him, all other men are less than God, they are not God, they are against God, he is God. So there's no comparison there, and we have to have him the incomparable son of man who is the son of God, 100% man, 100% deity. There's also no comparison between what he is calling you to and what the world desires. It is light and darkness, and there is no gray area. There is no place to walk where you can satisfy both light and dark. Not in the economy of God. You either are going to follow in the light or you're going to abide and dwell in darkness. You cannot have it both ways. Yet we continually try. We try on a moral level to cut it both ways. Um, I can be light but dark, and, and I am so tired of picking up papers and, and news feeds and things and hearing about preachers doing horrible immoral things. How did we get to this point? Easy. We didn't abide in the light. We didn't dwell there. And we started making uh, moral statements, and I started hearing that very early on in my pastorate, which is now uh, a generation ago, when I heard young people who are now the parents uh, making statements that alarmed me, and I confronted them on it. I was like, what do you mean? Well, we gotta, it's okay to look like the world, dress like the world, talk like the world, because we want to reach the world. Reach them with what? With Jesus. Which Jesus? Because that's not the Jesus I know, because the Jesus I know says if you love the world or any part of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. You have to make a choice. But you see, these young people are already creating a rationale to walk this hypocritical line that saves no one and condemns everyone. Because they knew Jesus, but they loved the world, and they wanted to get along with their peers at school. They didn't want to be the odd duck out. They didn't want to uh, make waves in society. They, didn't, they just wanted, can't we all get along? And that was their watchword, and guess what? They're lost. And all the people that are going to reach with Jesus will reach with the wrong Jesus, because it wasn't the Jesus of Scripture, because it wasn't light. It was dim and darkness. So Jesus calls them to the light that you have to abide there. And if you do not believe in him, really believe that which brings you to, to a different character and action, that you are really just abiding in the darkness while you're pretending to claim the light. 
And this introduces a concept that most Christians are totally messed up on, let alone the world. And that is the idea of what judges us. And we're going to have to take some time here. Not because it's unclear in the scripture, but because we have muddied the waters of our own concepts of what it means to be judged and to be the judge and what it is that condemns us and the difference between someone pointing to your sin and declaring you guilty of that sin and then judging that sin. Now, we have come to the world in our, in, in our politically correctness that you can't point to anyone and say that's wrong. Let's just be honest with it. That is the condition right now. And if you're disturbed about the movement, about homosexuality and then transgenderism, realize that, that you might think, well, well, we're beyond the tip of the iceberg now, and you're not. You're not yet. Because now pedophilia is now a lifestyle. And if you don't think that's coming judicially uh, in our society, you haven't been paying attention. Yeah, it gets worse and worse and worse, doesn't it? And it continues to get worse and worse. And people say, oh, pretty soon we're going to have this and that. And I'm like, no, we're going to have this. They go, no, never. Oh, yes. You don't understand how dark our society is. Because you've been trying to walk in the twilight, thinking that somehow you can please both sides. And you just won't acknowledge just how black this side is in their hearts, in their lives, in their desires, which makes you part of that. That's the side you have chosen to cling to because you have not embraced fully the light. And so Jesus comes in, he makes a statement. And the statement is, I've not come to judge you. And we insert there are modern, political correct concepts of what it means to judge me. Which, here's our definition of judgment, that you have a low or negative opinion of it. Or of me. That's what we think of when we think of judgment, correct? Don't judge me that you think negatively or lowly of my position or of my person. And that's judging me. How can you judge me? And so we're not allowed to go around to tell people that's wrong. That's wrong. Because who are you to judge me? You know, it's my life and I'm not hurting anybody. And <laughs> That's a lie. Another lie from Satan that he loves to perpetuate and that Christians tolerate far too much. Uh, I've heard that in church. I come to someone, you're, this is something, that, I'm not hurting anybody, pastor. It's my own sin. I'm like, if I'm here standing in front of you, it's obvious that someone is getting hurt by that, and you should be concerned about who you ultimately are hurting, which is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And if you're willing to hurt him, then you are among the crowd that said crucify him. But you see, we have taken that concept of judgment and put in their opinion. You can't, you're not allowed to express a negative opinion about me. You can't look down on me. And we make it an aspect of, of whether you respect me or not. And we have inserted those ideas into this word of judgment. And Jesus Christ says, I have not, I have not come into the world to judge you, the world. And in fact, that was not his mission. And I want you to make this perfectly understood. This does not mean that Jesus Christ is saying, live however you want. 
I won't judge you. I won't have a negative view or negative opinion or a convicting work against that sin. Because if you read any of the prophets, you'll know that what they went around and did is took a great big long pointy finger and said, sin, 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 sin. John the Baptist was the same way. Was his main message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Yes. What got him killed? He pointed at the king and said, that is sin. Long, bony, pointy finger. That's sin. He's called him out on it. Lost his head. That's what lost the head of most all the prophets. Because not only did they tell, here's the plan of God, here's the working of God, but it was necessary to that to that message is that is sin and the world has said you're not allowed to do that you don't you don't, you can't look down on me because they don't understand judgment you see my declaration that, that is sin is not judgment that's not going to judge you you're not going to get to the great white throne judgment and they're going to say come here pastor kirk um, didn't you call them out on that sin that it is not going to happen. <laughs> I can't judge sin because I'm not the judge of all the earth. And Jesus Christ said, I didn't come down here to be your judge. That does not mean I accept what you're doing, but because the fact is I reject what you're doing. I just cried out against it, and I'm calling you to come into the light and get out of the darkness, which means that I've just declared to you you are in the dark. You are in spiritual morass. You are in trouble. I've come to deliver you out of it. So what is it that judges us? Well, we already have condemnation. We've already judged. Here's the first thing that we are... Um, by the way, the, the concept of judgment in, in the Bible is not opinion. It's not respect. It's not uh, a negative view of something. Uh, judgment is to declare you guilty. That's what the word judgment in... in Involves, that you are guilty. There is no opinion involved. There is no but, but, but. There is no maybe. There is, it is you're guilty. That's what judgment means. Biblical use of that term is you are declared guilty. It's when the gavel goes down, boom, guilty. Life in prison. That's not why Jesus came. He's not the gavel. He's not the declaration of guilt. Here's what declares you guilty. The law. The law declares you guilty. Jesus Christ didn't have to condemn you. He didn't have to declare you guilty because the law has already made you guilty. That's one of its key purposes. All the way back to the garden and certainly ever since, the law's purpose, the commandments of God, makes you guilty. The law judges you. First of all, that's why we take people to Ten Commandments to say, hey, have you kept these? Well, yeah, well, yeah. now come on. And they go, well, no, I'm guilty. Did I condemn them? Did I declare them guilty? No, the law declares them guilty. Their conscience declares them guilty. Now, Jesus Christ goes on and he, he said, well, and my words are going to condemn you. So we are already condemned guilty by the law, which these people that he's talking to have embraced as the biggest thing. They're going to try to illegally 
have him crucified by violating the law because they said he violated the law. And so they're willing to break the law in order to condemn him for breaking what they think is a higher law, which doesn't make any sense at all because they're in the dark. So you have their own conscience and the law condemning them. You have uh, uh, the light. They're walking in darkness. That They've rejected the light. And so I've come as a light. You've got to believe in the light. What was the light? The, from the signs all the way from the preaching of John the Baptist, all the teaching you've seen, a man raised from the dead, all these things, a man born blind is, can see. Uh, this man who was among you was healed on the Sabbath. He's still here. There he is walking over there. Um, Still got a spring in his step all this time. And uh, you've rejected that. You've chosen the darkness. That condemns you. Your own choice condemns you. And then finally he says, my words will condemn you. What does that mean when my words condemn you? Jesus Christ just says, I don't condemn you, but my words will. Why? Because he has offered them salvation. He has told them the truth. Understand this. You tell someone the truth, you're doing it because you love them and you want them to follow the truth. The reason I preach is to be, not because I want you all to be judged more severely by God in the end days. I preach the truth out of a genuine desire that you walk in the truth. And I'm convinced that for many of us, we have not been exposed to sufficient truth, even from biblical preaching, so-called. And we got guys picking up the Bible and making God responsible for your sin. Well, no wonder they're sleeping with little boys. They aren't committed to the truth. So why do we communicate the truth? Why did Jesus Christ come? He comes to deliver men. But the fact is, if you don't believe the truth when told the truth, the truth that you've just heard condemns you. Not the person who told it to you, the truth that you were told. And so fundamentally, when I come to someone and say, that's sin, I'm not judging you. I'm communicating to you truth. That is sin, not by my opinion, but by the word of God. That is darkness. That is not the light of Jesus Christ. That behavior, that attitude, that speech, that omission in your life is evidence that you do not want to walk according to the truth of God's word. My job is to point out to you, not to condemn you, not to judge you, not to have a negative opinion of you, but to save you. Oh, please walk in the truth so that we can have confidence that we have eternal life. Not, be, not to earn eternal life. We can't earn it by walking, but the evidence that we have confidence, that we can know that we have eternal life is your walk. And so when we reject his word, when his word comes, he's not there. He says, I'm not here to judge you, but my words will judge you. What does that mean? I've come to save you. Jesus Christ's mission was to deliver us. But when you're given the opportunity to be delivered and you reject it, that opportunity itself becomes your judge. So you can't stand before God and say, I never heard. Yes, you did. You heard the truth. And you heard it again. 
and you heard it again, and you heard it again. How many times have Jesus declared he is the way, the truth, and life? How many times he said, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. You must be born again. How many times do we have to go through this where he's saying the exact same message? And they reject it over and over and over again. His words condemn them. He has come to save them. That's his purpose, his motive, is to bring them deliverance, bring them from death to life, bring them from darkness to the light. That's his job. That's his mission. That's ultimately what the sacrifice is all about. Believe in me. I am from the Father. I speak in the words of the Father. Just believe. Please believe. Because if you don't believe it, that truth that you were just confronted with will condemn you. What is the truth? When you're given the truth, you have been given opportunity. And this God has done for all the world. And Romans 1 tells us where the opportunity for everyone resides. Where does it reside? In creation itself. The first place you found the truth of God is in creation itself. The stars declare his handiwork, psalmist tells us. In creation itself, it says all the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen. It is clear evidence. If we are honest about our study of creation, biology, geology, uh, bugology, what's that? <laughs> if we study all of the different creation, all those ologies that science claims, which is pretty funny because they deny ology, but they use it all the time. You get all of those together, all the chemistry, all of that, they all point to God. But we reject that first line of evidence, and it's no surprise that Satan is attacking the first line of truth. We shouldn't, from, from Copernicus on, it was an attack on the truth of God's word that undermines the Bible from start to finish so that we come to science and we say, I have to trust science and not trust God. Because we want to eliminate the first word of truth, and that is creation. All the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen there, but we reject those. Now, Romans takes us very quickly and leaps to the end result, which is complete immorality, and yes, he does pick out homosexuality particularly. But we have this process that once we reject that first line of truth, now God gives us another line of truth, and through his word and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And then we have these, these preachers that come out there and tell us the truth and tell us the truth. And we'd rather have them dead than hear it. And now we have come to the point where we can't call anything sin. And to do so is hate speech. And I am the biggest hate speech person in this county, maybe. I don't know. It just, if, if you, because I'll call it all sin. I'm not afraid to call homosexuality sin because I think if you're sleeping with somebody who's not your wife, you're in sin. Heterosexuality is sin outside of marriage. But we've made it hate speech. I want you to notice that's what these people have done with the words of Jesus. They're calling it hate speech. We want them dead for that. Jesus says that very speech that you reject will condemn you. Why? Because you heard the truth over and over and over again. And every opportunity you have to receive the truth that you reject condemns you a little bit more. 
It declares you guilty. You're guilty. Why? You know the truth and you reject it. You've heard the truth. You ignore it. You know the truth, but you won't live it. That's why Jesus Christ has said, depart from me. I never knew you. But, 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 no buts. You're given the truth over and over again and you flatly reject it because you didn't conform your life to it. You didn't pick up my truth and say, I want to conform my life to this. In every single area. Not just on one day a week, but every day of the week. Not just in one area, just not in my spiritual life, but in my physical life, in my financial life, in my family life, in every aspect of my life, I'm going to conform it to this book. Do I have to change my radio station? Yes. Do I have to turn off my computer sometimes? Yes. Do I have to change my apparel? Yes. The Bible calls all out from your physical appearance all the way down to your thought life. From the most public things to the most private things. It calls it all out. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And the fact that we have access to his word, we have access to the Holy Spirit, we claim it, and we have access to preaching, we have access to the, the life of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ doesn't condemn us. They say, well, notice Jesus says, I, I came and I lived sinless. And when I say, well, I'm not like Jesus, well, his life doesn't condemn you. The law condemns you. Your conscience condemns you. Creation condemns you. Preaching condemns you. His words condemn you because God didn't expect you to live like Jesus because he knew you couldn't. Only Jesus could live like Jesus because he is the only Lamb of God that could take away the sins of the world. That's why Jesus was sent, not to condemn you, but to save you. But he's calling them, get out of the idea you can believe me in secret and live how you please. Get that thought out of your mind. You are walking a line that will destroy you, means you're not going to heaven, and you will destroy everyone that you know. You are removing from them the opportunity to come to Christ because they see in you nothing much different than what they are. And when I go to the statistics of churches and I look at the statistics of society, and I look at them, and I look at the divorce statistics, I look at these other statistics, and I look at them, and look at them, and I go, uh, no difference. What is my conclusion? That I'm okay with a tiny little church that walks in light. Because most of the church is walking in darkness. They're just like these people who say, we believe everything about Jesus, but we love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Who's a successful pastor? Name them. And I'll name you a bunch of guys that have the praise of men. Because we measure success the way we measure success of everything else in this country, by more. If you have more, that's successful. Now, does that mean if we become a church of 300 that I'm going to you know, run away? Um, no, but at some point we need to recognize that society should hate us if we're walking the light, not applaud us. And when the statistics tell us that the church is just like the world, we go, whoa, we got to change something radically and fast. Or we're in danger of being condemned, judged by the words of Jesus Christ. Walk in the light. Have fellowship with me in the light. 
Because if you're walking in darkness, you cannot claim to be in the light. You have essentially rejected Jesus even as you claim to receive him. You rejected him, you're not receiving his words, and that judges you. Not me, not my opinion, that's irrelevant. The truth condemns us. We are confronted with the truth in creation. We're confronted with the truth in God's word. We're confronted with the truth by the Holy Spirit. We're confronted by the truth in, this, in the preaching of God's word. We're confronted with truth. And yes, our jobs confront the world with truth. As much as they don't want to hear it, they must hear it. Why? Is there only hope? I am not confronted with the truth because I want them to be judged more severely at the end. I'm confronted with the truth because that is their only hope of deliverance. And to do anything but confront them with the truth of God's word and the light and to show them the light in my life is injurious to them and to me. Their only hope. But in the end, will my words rejected, like Jesus' words rejected, condemn them? Absolutely. Why? Because it's the truth. The truth condemns if you don't accept it. Because you had opportunity to respond. And this is the nature of the gospel, of Jesus' mission to offer salvation with a motive to love, out of love and out of a desire to deliver, once rejected, that very same opportunity to be saved becomes the very thing that condemns you. Let me end with this illustration. You're confronted with someone drowning, and you have a life preserver. They're out there drowning. You're in the boat, safe and secure, and you have the life preserver. If you don't throw life preserver out, you're guilty of that person's death. You're guilty. You throw the life preserver out and they push it aside and drown. Who's guilty? They are. What condemned them? Not you. The life preserver did. Because they had it available. They had access. But if we withhold that access to the truth by living this this little mealy mouth Christian life that we call Christian, that our society says, well, that's okay. Um, and we're trying to please both sides and we're really trying to appease, not please. We're trying to appease both sides. Um, we're lost and we have, we're, we're guilty because we have really essentially rejected the responsibility we have. Jesus Christ threw out the life preserver. They pushed it away and in a few couple of days, they're going to be yelling out, crucify him. And many of them will die in their sin. As Jesus already declared to them, you will die in your sin if you reject me. And they did. And so they were judged. Not a negative opinion, not, not political correctness. We're talking about declared guilty. I don't declare you guilty. Your conscience does. The law does. Creation does. God's word does. And if I tell the truth and you feel guilty, it's already made you, it's already declared you guilty. Just simply waiting for the day when you'll be in the light of God's judgment. So we are called to give people the opportunity that they might be saved, recognizing that that opportunity, if they reject it, becomes their judgment. And this is 
the tragedy that every prophet of God and Jesus Christ himself and every, every person of God since then struggles with. Oh, if only you would believe. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your words. We thank you because we know that they were intended to save, not to judge. But that, that whether they save or judge is dependent upon our response to it. And Lord, our prayer is that we might lay hold of every opportunity to obey your word. To bring it into our very lives. To conform ourselves to it. And, and to be brutally honest in where we have conformed ourselves to the world. That we have made rationalization for sin the norm in our conversation about following after you. Lord, forgive us. But only forgive us to the extent that we're willing to transform ourselves by the power of your spirit and your word to become followers of your truth without fear, unashamed, and with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, we pray not only for our own predicament, but for your people throughout this land and the earth who do not look, sound, any different than the world. Cannot represent light because they are mostly in darkness. Lord, bring conviction there. Bring your truth to bear. Lord, we also pray for the lost that are around us. Many of them, though they have Christian friends, have never seen the light of the righteousness of God who is holy, holy, holy in us. They've never seen it because we've never shown it to them. Lord, forgive us. And Lord, we pray that you might bring into their lives the genuine article they might be confronted with the truth, with the light of righteousness, that they might be saved. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.